This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by Renthal and Fly Racing. Welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast. My name is Adam Wheeler. I write for On Track Off-Road Magazine, occasionally for The Telegraph when they want to acknowledge that motorcycle racing actually exists, and a few other people here and there. I'm delighted to be joined by David Emmett, who is supposed to be on holiday, but has been bashing out some great content on his website, motomatters.com, when he hasn't been mourning for the fifth day in a row over the changing landscape for British monarchy. Uh, Neil Morrison, who has never felt more British these days, is also on the line and is, of course, the right extraordinary MotoGP for titles such as MCN in both the UK and Australia, Cycle News, Motorcourse and On Track Off-Road. His soothing and silky vocals will be instantly recognisable to those who tune into any Moto2 or Moto3 free practice session so that'll be all three of you. Welcome to the podcast. The show, as ever, is brought to you thanks to Rental Street. Yes, they have a plethora of road bike accessories, as well as being kings of the off-road segment. And Fly Racing, another brand that also has a full complement of gear for riders of all types and all machines on the street. Gents, uh, we're all based in Spain at the moment, and we're anticipating the last race before MotoGP gets uh, jet set. We don't have Steve English with us. He's getting ready for recording the World Superbike podcast, which is actually going to be done today. So we'll have two podcasts out this week. We're going to jump straight into some questions that we've asked uh, some listeners to send in uh, to from Twitter and also from Patreon. Thanks again, guys, for backing us on the Patreon channel. This weekend from Motorland, we'll be bringing you updates and views directly from the circuit right after free practice and the media debriefs to let you know what's going on. So check us out over on Patreon there if you want to get that kind of content. Neil, you're waving at me. You have something to say. Just before we dive, uh, dip and dive into the, the Twitter questions, I have a question for you, Ad. How long did it take you to write that intro? Because it was uh, exceptionally deliberate. Smooth. <laughs> Well, actually, I'm here sweating away now because this morning I picked up a KTM Super Duke 1290 to ride to Motorland. And it's, as you know, in Barcelona at the moment, it's 12 trillion degrees in terms of humidity. Yes. So riding a very uh, robust, hot motorcycle through the traffic um, has left me perspiring somewhat. So it was a rushed intro. So I apologize if I got any small details wrong. I had to uh, put a t-shirt on for this podcast, which uh, I'm already regretting. It's kind of uh, just a pants day, I would say. It's that hot and humid. It's lovely up in the mountains. I'm sure our viewers are wishing we had a video podcast uh, or a version going of this show right away, or, or perhaps not. Dave, um, you're already in Aragon. How's it been going there? Uh, you, you're there with your lovely wife. Um, have you been doing any walking? Because the last time we heard from you on the podcast, you were walking wounded. Uh, yes, I have been doing some walking. I even managed to um, uh, climb up a very low mountain um, or walk up a very uh, low mountain. Um, the leg is recovering very, very nicely. And I heard from the doctor that it's probably just a, it was probably just a small muscle tear uh, and uh, I mean genuinely I suppose like the last Monday I was still having a great deal of it was quite difficult walking uh, but now everything's pretty much back to normal so it's it's fine I haven't been doing my normal extremely energetic hikes but um, uh, we have been sort of moseying around and been able to enjoy the fantastic scenery it's a bit of a traditional track for you to go to, you know, with, with Rocha to Motorland Aragon and sort of stay either before or after the Grand Prix. But it's also a fantastic country for motorcycle roads. Are you not a little envious when you're there or feeling the pang for um, a little bit of BMW action? 
a hundred percent because I've actually I actually came down through this region in two thousand and four or two thousand and five. I can't remember uh, a very long time ago. Uh, we went down all the way down to Teruel on the uh, uh, on the bike, um, and it is it's fantastic. It's just it's just a spectacular place. It's also I mean uh, I came across a couple of Royal Enfield Himalayas the other day uh, riding along. There's a long gravel path past a. Uh, uh, past the re- a reservoir and uh, and over a local mountain, and they were sort of like bumbling around um, there, and it was just great. But yes, yeah, I mean, like every single year I go, I regret not being on the motorbike. And one year I'm going to make it down on the motorbike. A friend and colleague of ours, Polarity Photo, Rob Gray, has recently passed his motorcycle test. He did the intense course, three days of tuition, jumped on a, I don't think it was a CBR 500 or something. Do they, do they still make those, Dave? Uh, and then, you know, passed his test. So congratulations to Rob. Uh, check out his Instagram profile, Polarity Photo, because it's full of wondrous stuff of MotoGP. He really is a bit of a magician with the lens. But Neil, the pressure's on you, man. I mean, the, you know, it's... Uh, <laughs> I mean, you've got all the gear. Fly Racing have hooked you up with the jackets and stuff. Rob's, you know, practiced for his test. He's taken his motorcycle test and passed in four days. You're running out of excuses. I know. My excuse was the uh, the kind of helter-skelter schedule that we uh, that we enjoy in our working lives with MotoGP. But, uh, I mean, if Polarity Photo has managed to find the time uh, in between races, then uh, there's literally no excuse for, for me to. So, um, yeah, I'll be, uh, I'll be up against it. But... This uh, this winter break, that's uh, that's when it is. I'll, I'll tell you. I'll tell you now. Please let me know when you're learning, because I'll just you know move residents in Barcelona to a neighbourhood that's a little further away from yours. It might be uh, slightly safer, I think. You know, I do have two children who are also out on the street. Uh, guys, enough waffle. Let's let's get into some of the questions from the listeners. Um, first of all, Johnny Raul, Dave and Neil says to us, uh, what, can we expect a new manufacturer in MotoGP for 2024? No. Can we, can we give a bit more substance there, Johnny? Uh, no, not really. Um, I mean, like basically, there's there are uh, entering MotoGP costs an awful lot of money. It's a massive investment. It takes a long time to actually build a bike. If we knew, uh, if there was another manufacturer going to enter, we would have heard uh, sort of rumblings of people testing stuff. Um, the, I mean. Yeah, Dawn aren't really all that desperate for a, for an additional manufacturer. I think we might see an extra team maybe in 2024, but it's more likely to be another satellite team. Um, and the, yeah, I mean, like I said, I don't think there are very many manufacturers who have the funding nor the motivation to be in MotoGP. BMW do extremely well with their uh, cars and bikes and all the rest of it and their branding all over the series without actually racing in the series. So there's no reason for them. And then, you know, who else, who else would join? The rest are all really too small to be competing. Would Triumph be the most realistic brand or why, yeah, I mean, we've got would, a new brand next year but yeah, not but, another I manufacturer mean, yeah well why would they bother when they've got when they get lots and lots of publicity from uh from the Mark two championship i don't I, I don't see the added benefit and and again i mean it's a serious commitment i mean uh it, you, you know it's 50 60 million a year and then the first uh, that's just to go racing uh, before that, you've got to invest, you know, another sort of fifty million just to get to the point where you have a bike where you could start to enter it, and you've got, and you're looking at maybe four or five years before it really starts to, uh, you know, to pay off. Look how long it took 
Aprilia to produce a, a, a competitive bike. Um, uh, KTM, I wouldn't say they got lucky, but I mean, uh, they did, they've done an outstanding job. They've managed to win races, but they've also managed to ride around the back and look really, really sort of shockingly disappointing. So it's, um, it's a very mixed bag for them. Uh, and it's only their, their absolute determination and commitment that, that sort of keeps them in the game. So I, I think it's, it's a very, very tricky one, though. Neil, uh, Fast Captain 18 asks, who will be the next American in MotoGP? I mean, we have three of them in the Moto2 class that you get to see, you know, quite frequently every weekend. Uh, would, would it be fair to say Joe Roberts is in pole position to be the next American? No, just considering he's, what, three or four years younger than the likes of Cameron Bobier? Yeah, um, it's a difficult one to say, Ad, really. I mean, um, I kind of think if, if Cameron Bobier had continued on the trajectory that we saw at the start of this season where he was fighting for um, podiums and even race wins on certain occasions. Um, I think we could have said that uh, that maybe Cameron was more likely. Um, we know that uh, American Racing, when they heard of the Suzuki news that they were going to withdraw at the end of this year, uh, put their names forward to maybe step up to MotoGP with a project in which uh, Cameron would be the the centerpiece. Um, that didn't uh, that obviously didn't happen. Cameron's going to stay model two for another year. But um, yeah, I would say his form has maybe just dipped off a little bit recently. And um, we haven't really seen the best of him. I think since uh, well the Netherlands. Yeah, the second half part of the season hasn't hasn't really got going for him so far. And Joe Roberts has been decent this year in model two. Um, he's had a couple of fantastic results. He obviously won America's first race in the intermediate class. Uh, since John Krasinski in 1990 back in Portugal. Uh, then had a great podium in Mugello, was leading the race in Catalonia before he crashed out. But since then, it's, I mean, it's not been, I think, eye-catching form. It's not been um, MotoGP team managers knocking on your door kind of form. Um, you know, he's had a good season. He's sitting sixth overall. He has a good chance of finishing maybe fifth this season, which I think would represent a really good season. Um, but I wouldn't say either of them have done... Uh, uh, done the kind of season that would would make you think that MotoGP is on the horizon. Um, I still think if, if Bobier can fight for the championship next year, then um, Dorna might find a way to get him up. But I think also the, the same could be said of Roberts. Um, you know, if he has a, a really good season, he's, you know, the, the American nationality is the kind of nationality that Dorna will want to promote to, to MotoGP, even if the rider is having a, a pretty solid year. So one of those two, I would say. We've got a fast Japanese in Moto2. We've also got a fast Thai rider I think everybody universally likes, uh, just for the way that Somket Chandra does his Park Ferme interviews and seems to be completely over the moon every time he achieves something. But uh, you know, a question for you guys, what kind of nationality do we think MotoGP needs? Uh, you know, is it, We have a French world champion, but do we need a German? Do we need uh, an American? Do we need a Brit? I mean, if you consider that a Brit. Well, I mean, if you consider BT Sports are one of Dorna's kind of signature TV broadcasting partners, um, you know, not to have a, a British rider in the Premier Class perhaps is a little bit limiting for for the UK audience. I mean, the Saxon Ring is full. It's a very busy Grand Prix, even though they really don't have Marcel Schrotter to cheer for. Uh, you know, but I just I wonder if would having an American high up in, in MotoGP or on a promising ride really may perhaps boost interest over there or even at Cotter? Um, I definitely think having an American would make a huge difference. Uh, like America remains the, or the US media market remains one of Dorna's biggest 
targets because it's so lucrative. There's so much money there. So they're really trying to get in, uh, in sort of in there. So yeah, I mean, having an American rider would be having a successful, fast, competitive American rider would be really, really important. Um, the MotoGP field is looking, uh, a bit, um, how can I put this? It's a bit, a bit monotonous next year. It's mostly, uh, mostly Spanish. I think it's 10 Spaniards. Am I, uh, am I right? And then quite a lot of Spaniards, five, six, seven Italians. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it, it's looking, it is looking, uh, sort of very uh, bland and it, it needs just more, more variety, more variety in, in general. I think, uh, I think having Ayogura would be, really really good for the series as well just because you know he is a really fast uh, rider um some catchantra also yeah because he's a great personality you know it would bring a lot of uh, it would attract a lot of people to support so yes uh asia i think is is another big important market to have a really strong competitive rider from uh neil just to put you on the spot because you mentioned you know having a brilliant motor gp cal crutchlow is making a motor G- his second motor gp return in aragon this weekend uh, can we have any realistic expectations for him at all? I think the circumstances around his appearance may be a little bit more favourable than last year where he was thrown in last minute, um, hadn't had much testing time with the Yamaha. Now he's had like a full year, at least getting used to the culture of the company or having more laps on the M1 uh, in terms of his development role. I mean, we couldn't expect much in 2021, but do you think perhaps in these last sort of five races we might see a more adventurous or, uh, you know, a cow crutcher that's basically not there just to put the colours in front of a camera. Um, I think it's a, it's going to be a difficult scenario. Um, you just have to look at um, that team has had a tough, tough season so far. Um, Andrea Dovizio is all retired because of uh, the lack of competitiveness of, of him with that package. We know that um, Crutchlow maybe isn't having such uh, such kind of difficulties adapting himself to the, to the Yamaha. Um, but, um, I think the fact that it's six races is probably, um, a good thing for him rather than it just being two or three. Um, I think maybe the belief with Cal is that, um, it it will take a couple of races to get up to speed. He has been away for a year. Um, and even then last year, he was only doing a, you know, uh, I forget the exact number, but, um, uh, six, five, six rides um, for Yamaha. So essentially, he hasn't been a full-time rider since 2020, and we know how injury-popped that entire season was. Um, so I do think it will take a few runs to get up into the swing of things. Um, but he has six races, so he has a few races where he can just get comfortable, get himself up to speed. And then there are a few tracks where, you know, Cal um, has historically gone well at that we are going to, uh, the likes of Mategi, um, Phillip Island, of course, yeah, where he scored his win in uh, in 2016 um, and a podium in 2019 as well. So, yeah, I think, you know, if he can get a couple of races under his belt, Philip Island, we could well see uh, a bit of a surprise. You know, I think if he scores a top 10 finish um, this season, that would that would count as a as a success because I don't think David Seals managed that in uh, the 14 races prior to his retirement. I don't think you could uh, accuse the last British winner of a MotoGP round of being prolific on social media. But did anybody see his uh, recent tweet? I think it was the day before yesterday, just dripping with sarcasm. Uh, I kind of read it and thought it'd be interesting to have Cal back in the paddock. Yeah, he's not dull, is he? 
<laughs> no, nor is he uh, particularly excited about the entire uh, the entire thing. I mean, you know, he, he became a test re- rider for a reason. Um, he was pretty much done with racing. So, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how that all works out. Another question we had from Mini48 is, why have KTM treated Remy Gardner so harshly? Uh, I think, you know, we've been over that a little bit on the last couple of podcasts, Mini, if you want if you want to have a listen to the last show or two. Uh, I think, you know, we're heading towards an announcement. I mean, we, we'll talk about the Nakagami news and the VR46 a little bit later on the show. We'll touch on that. No great surprises. Um, Augusto Fernandez has been heavily linked to the second gas gas saddle for, for next year. And that should be confirmed soon, um, which, you know, and Remy Gardner is, of course, confirmed to be departing the series. Guys, uh, you know, there's a bit more of a distance from it. I mean, the emotion was still pretty raw. The comments were kind of unabashed, if you like, in in Mizano. Um, It really just looks like a situation where Remy's face didn't fit. uh, the, The attitude didn't suit what KTM wanted. And both parties went their separate ways. So you could look at it as KTM perhaps treating a Moto2 world champion and a rookie harshly. But then, you know, the story always has two sides. And I'm sure Remy might look in the mirror and think, well, you know, could I have done that better? Or did I even want to do anything different, you know, in his in his first year? I mean, I think that uh, KTM have a reputation for treating riders harshly. Absolutely. Same with uh, Joan Zarco. Um, they don't take criticism at all well. And uh, Remy was occasionally uh, less than nuanced in his criticism. Uh, but also, like all of the stuff we've heard from inside KTM is that uh, his attitude didn't really fit. They didn't think he was taking it seriously enough. He wasn't trying hard enough. Um, and now every rider always thinks that they are, you know, doing what it takes. But um, uh Teams can view that differently, so yeah, I think it's a, it's sort of like six to one. Would it should they have should they have sort of persevered? Yeah, maybe. Uh, will Augusto Fernandez do any better? I doubt it. Um, not unless the bike. I mean, the problem is the bike. The bike is not competitive. Yeah, I think uh, what Dave mentioned is true, and um, those issues were obviously integral uh, in KTM's decision to um, uh, part ways with Remy at the end of this year. Um, I kind of understand that, um, but I also think you just look at, at Moto2 this year and you think that I think there's only been two races so far um, that we've gone to that are still comparable in 2022 that have been faster in race time than 2021. Those two races were Cota, where the track has been resurfaced since 2021, and Le Mans, where the race last year was uh, it started in half and half conditions. So um, you could argue that there hasn't been one single race this year where um, the class of 2022 in Moto2 have got um, really close to the sort of um, times and pace that Gardner and Raul Fernandez were setting last year. Um, I think with Jello, for example, the race this year was 18 seconds slower than last year. I mean, that is a, that's a crazy amount of time. 20 seconds slower in Barcelona this year than it was last year. So... Um, I don't think they're getting a, an improvement in, in Augusto Fernandez, but um, as Dave said, you have to be so careful and nuanced with how you talk about KTM machinery in public. And uh, Remy was not always that. Um, he was honest, and I think we we like that. We appreciate that as, as people in the press. But um, in terms of being a company man, they clearly felt that 
he wasn't the accompaniment. Yeah, I mean, Remy clearly didn't want to play the game to the full extent uh, in terms of being the presentable face or presenting a presentable face. Um, but, you know, just to play devil's advocate for a moment, Neil, I mean, just because you're kicking ass in Moda 2, that doesn't necessarily uh, a, a strong Moda GP rider make, does it? Uh, perhaps, you know, when it comes to the extra development nuance or the knowledge of electronics or you know working with a significantly larger team uh, of different cultures and nationalities uh, perhaps that is you know is a skill set that you know you don't necessarily need in motor 2 but it's something to really have on your side in motor gp and i think if you know ktm bosses have said well augusto fernandez maybe is a better prospect from what we've seen uh, you know in that I mean, he's had a kind of a little bit of a similar career trajectory to Remy, maybe a little bit more successful, you can say. Uh, then, you know, I, I guess you've got to trust the, the people who are signing off the checks. But, um, but yeah, it's, 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 not a, it's not a great situation. I think if, if Gardner had been far more controversial or he hadn't shown any signs whatsoever of learning the class or making any, any progression, then it would have been easier to understand. Well, you mean like Raul Fernandez? Because for me, Raul Fernandez has been a much, much bigger disappointment than than Remy Gardner. I mean, like he's just totally phoned this season in. Now he may be uh, more talented. Um, I think that's hard to say. But um, I mean, for me, Raul Fernandez has been a much, much bigger disappointment than than, than Remy Gardner because he just basically hasn't even bothered. We're talking about, um, you know, the Gas Gas team for next year. Uh, Tech 3, of course, changing colour from orange to red. And we had a question from, <coughs> excuse me, David MacArthur on Patreon who asked us, why does Paul, a Spargaro, keep getting rides? Because he's quite good. Because um, he took KTM from um, obscurity to regular podium finishes in 2020. He scored five podium finishes with KTM in 2020 and finished fifth in the championship. Um, and he uh, put it all on the line for them. He gave everything. He sweated blood and tears. He put absolutely everything into bringing that bike up to a competitive thing. And that is one thing that will endear you to KTM bosses. So that is why he's got the KTM ride. Yeah, and every single session as well. Like every single session, like Sunday morning warm-up, he's getting 110%. Uh, you know, a miserable uh, damp test in sort of Sepang or in the middle of the searing heat. Uh, Paul is out there giving 110%. That is, I mean, like literally, you talk to Paul Travath and he's, he's crew chief and he can't speak highly enough about him. I mean, like, you know, the thing about Paul is that he always gives everything. And that means that the result that you get um, is consistent. You know, it, it's, 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 what's, it, it's what he's capable of on, on that bike. And that means that you can always measure your data against everything else. You don't have to worry about, okay, well, maybe he's uh, easing up a little bit here or maybe he's not sort of fully focused here, whatever. It's just like he always gives everything. It's also, I mean, he's one of the more experienced riders now in the class. I mean, he's represented three brands. He's scored podium finishes with two of them. Uh, I think you'll find a lot of people in the paddock speak well of him. Uh, yeah, I know at KTM, he was adored for his ability to really mold the team around him. Uh, he was one of those sort of guys that walks in the garage and likes to greet every single person. Um, he knows the value of building a, a productive team environment. Uh, he took a, a motorcycle that was two and a half seconds off the pace in Qatar when KTM debuted, like you said, Neil, to, you know, podium contention. So I think, you know, he does have the right attributes. Um, you know, that's probably the reason why he keeps getting rides. Um, you know, he's, uh, 
I, I think his value is sometimes hidden by the fact that there is there is a lack of results there, and you know his he's the first to admit that his HRC adventure um, hasn't really worked out. I think he he actually described it at one point as a nightmare, but uh, you know I think he felt more at home in in the European culture of you know certain manufacturers when it comes to working methods and pro and um, processes. We had the uh, the luck. The, I guess the good fortune of uh, being present in KTM Hospitality Valencia 2018 when Paul scored both his and KTM's first premier class podium. And we were basically waiting for, I think, Bradley Smith to come and uh, do his debrief that day. And Paul was in basically giving a rousing uh, talk to to the troops, essentially, and basically getting everyone fired up, getting everyone or thanking everyone for for what they have done, uh, for the work that they contributed to that podium finish. And um you can see very much there and then that he is uh, every bit a team leader, a factory leader, as he was for, uh, what, four seasons at KTM. Um, and this year, I don't think Tech 3 with two rookies um, have had that. So getting some experience in there, getting someone who can mold the team together, um, I think that is uh, pretty crucial. That's why he's been placed there. Just two questions left. Uh, John in Sheffield asks, can he buy a Paddock Pass podcast mug? Um, well, one easy way, John, is to subscribe to our highest patrons here and you'll get one for free. Uh, well, <laughs> not quite for free, but as a byproduct of your subscription. But uh, yeah, we'll certainly see what we can do in terms of getting you a mug. Um, I have to point out that nobody actually on the Paddock Pass podcast team has a Paddock Pass podcast mug as of yet. Steve English might be hoarding a box for all we know in Ireland, but um, he hasn't let on just yet. But we'll post a picture on Twitter so people can see if they really want to get one of the... Uh, the attractive looking mugs then we'll try and uh, get some uh, product over to loyal listeners uh, both neil and myself do actually have a mug uh, of the paddock pass podcast being uh, recorded because uh, rob gray polarity photo we mentioned earlier took a picture of us uh, recording a uh, the, the the podcast in austria one year and it's a, it's, it's a lovely picture and uh, i it makes my uh, my coffee taste even better Oh, I see. So favoritism, eh? Yeah. I just get, I get, this is where I get frozen out. <laughs> right, okay. I, I can see. I can see where my role in the team is. I'm just the, the Ringo at the, <laughs> the back of the stage. That was pre-Adam Wheeler on the podcast, though, to be fair. so um, Yeah, to be fair. We'll have to retake the photo. Oh, okay. Right. Oh, so that's when it was amateur hour. Okay, no worries. It's okay. <laughs> well, um, I'll let you, you guys keep your mugs. No worries. Uh, last question, Dave. This is really kind of over to you because um, you're, like I mentioned at the start of the show, your coverage from the Visano test on motomatters.com has been fantastic. Um, Nikki Kovac, of course, you know, sticking around for the test, sent you some lovely photos so you can see some of the new shiny bits that the factories were, you know, bringing out to play with for the first time in 2022. And uh, we had a question from David Windhorse who says, what do Calyx know about swing arms? Um, uh, quite a lot. You could, actually, you could probably ask Neil the same um, because... It's not so much that they know a lot about swing arms. They do know a lot about swing arms, but they know a lot about um, uh, manufacturing aluminium and they know a lot about motorcycle dynamics. Um, the, I mean, there's a, there is a very good reason that Calyx completely dominate Moto2. And that reason is quite simply because... Um, those bikes are really good. It's a really, really good chassis. And to actually just, just to catch up with, with Calyx would be incredibly difficult. Um, they're very good at uh, building and designing and understanding what, what, what a bike needs, what the swing arm needs. Uh, from what I understand, uh, the Calyx swing arm was extremely well received with it by, by the Honda riders, the riders who tried it. They said it was very good. Um, 
what they understand is is having the correct amount of flexibility. So what you want from a swing arm is, I mean, you need it to be stable when you're braking. You need it to sort of dig in when you're accelerating, but you also need it to provide a lot of feedback when you're on the edge of the tire. So um, you have to know what the rear tire is doing, both on corner entry and the braking. Um, when the swing arm is at an angle to the to the tarmac so it's actually sort of producing a little bit of, of, of suspension movement if you like it's helping absorb the, the 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 bumps on the surface and keep the tire stuck to the uh, to the track um and then it needs to respond predictably when you open the gas when you open the gas uh, when the tire starts to slide what you want to know is to know that if i give it a little bit more gas it will slide this much um, if i give it too much gas it's going to go to understand exactly where the limit is uh, of the grip uh, both in terms of drive but also in terms of just sort of like lean angle um, Calax are really really good at that they also have a fantastic supply chain which means they can get uh, the right uh, consistent level of material as well. Um, all you know, all metals are not the same. Uh, the the quality of your sort of raw material makes a difference as well. So they have all of this expertise. They have all of this data. We've seen what happens with Scott Redding uh, um, uh, on the BMW in World Superbikes once they got a, a Calyx swing arm. Um, it took them a couple of races and made a big step forward. So, yeah, what, what do Calyx know? Calyx know, or Calyx really understand about manufacturing um, aluminium swing arms. And the other thing is, what Honda have really struggled with is that sort of snappiness of the of the power delivery. It's a very sort of um, uh, unpredictable power delivery. So having a swing arm which will tell you what the rear tire will doing will sort of balance that out and make it easier to ride and prevent some of the massive high sides we've seen. Yeah, they've won 10 straight constructors' uh, titles in Model 2, which I think is uh, quite an, an astonishing achievement. They essentially, when you think about it, led KTM to just abandon Model 2 in terms of building chassis. Such was their success there. KTM were, I think, pretty open about that um, back in uh, the end of 2019. Um, they are very hands-on, but very open to ideas. Um, Alex Baumgartel, the kind of leader of the project, the, the, the chief designer, is, uh, you know, he's not just, I think, a, a kind of a, a genius when it comes to building chassis and swing arms, but he's also a very open, um, amiable guy who is uh, always um, sourcing feedback and always looking to listen to riders. He's always done speaking to Model 2 riders throughout the, throughout the paddock. Um, and I think that's, a, that's an approach that shows that he's very easy to work with, very easy to get on with and, and completely open to new ideas. Um, and, you know, I think it's, it's quite remarkable that this team of, I think, seven or eight people uh, find themselves in this kind of situation. I think it's testament to, to the, the, the kind of uh, the intelligence uh, and the know-how of um, the, the staff, including Alex Baumgartel. It's a really good point about uh, about Alex Baumgartel, um, that he does go down and talk to riders because he doesn't just go down and talk to the ones who are winning. He'll go down and talk to all of them. Uh, uh, you know, even the even the people who are riding around in last place, he'll go down and talk to them and find out what get their feedback because it helps him understand. This is a, you see the same with Gigi Delinia. Gigi Delinia is in every single Ducati rider's box um, because it's really important for him to understand exactly uh, what they what the bike is doing <clears throat> to be able to use that feedback to improve the bike. So it's not just about sort of the latest and greatest. Uh, it's not just 
just about the guys at the front. You actually earn more from the people who are further back because you understand what they're missing and what they're missing can help you improve your product, um, which can also help the people at the front. Dave, uh, you mentioned HRC using Calyx technology as something that was kind of groundbreaking, actually, for the, for the Japanese firm in terms of getting an external supplier and really looking for somebody else for a solution, you know, not like an in-house remedy, if yeah. you like. Uh, it was one of the talking points also from the Mizano test. And, um, you know, if you stay with us after this little commercial break, we'll come right back and we'll talk about that. Also, some news about Mark Marquez and, as we mentioned, some of the riders and saddles in place for 2023. Renthal Fat Bars are synonymous with off-road world champions. The Renthal Street Fat Bar draws from decades of experience to create the ultimate 28mm handlebar in a range of street-specific bends. Whether you're looking to alter the height, width, rise, or sweep of your handlebar, Renthal Street Handlebars offer a bend to suit your requirements. Use the WorksFit Handlebar Comparison Tool at Renthal.com to find the perfect bend. Fly Racing introduces the new FL2 glove. With molded hard knuckle protection, this race-inspired glove is equipped with palm and gauntlet sliders and touchscreen compatible fingers. Available in three colors and sizes from small to triple X, the Fly Racing FL2 glove is the perfect answer at the perfect price. Check out flyracing.com to see more. Welcome back to the second part of the show. We're going to talk a quick bit about the Mizano test. Two days, of course, uh, in the Adriatic coast that worked out to be quite important, not only for the rest of MotoGP this year, but also for next season. Uh, we saw diverse kind of stuff. We saw Honda and Yamaha already trying some new things, Aprilia, and you can say Ducati just working on small refinements. Uh, the likes of KTM were in a strange predicament. They had Danny Pedrosa there testing for them, but it was only really Pedrosa and Brad Binder who were looking at 2023 stuff on the RC16, considering the KTM had three riders who will be departing the Orange Camp for next year. So they were working more on continual race setup for the rest of this year. But Dave, um, what was what was the main sort of thing takeaway from you for you from the test? I mean. There were there were a few things. The first thing, and I think the most important for 2024, uh, no, hang on, 2023, I forget what year we are. Uh, at some point, it all just blends into one. Uh, uh, the <laughs> biggest thing for 2023, I think, is the Yamaha engine. Um, it was considerably faster. Uh, it was, you know, it accelerated better. Um, there were, it, and it responded very well as well. They still needed setting up, still needed some electronics work doing on it just to get the throttle response right and to get the, to get the management right. Um, it was still very manageable off the bottom end, but it had also had a lot more top end. Uh, both Franco Morbidelli and Fabio Quartararo were extremely pleased with the new engine. So that, that has to be very promising. And from what I've heard, um, the you know the the, the twenty twenty two or the twenty twenty three bike is going to be a, a big step forward, um, which is good because that's exactly what the championship needs. I mean, they were also playing with some aerodynamics. Uh, obviously, everyone's playing with aerodynamics because we're, we're looking forward to next year. So um, it's going to be interesting to see what that happens, and that's also one of the most important areas, sort of going future. Aerodynamics are not going away. Um, uh, Ducati had a new chassis which was uh, aimed more at sort of agility, which is interesting because uh, Yamaha working on power, Ducati working on agility, uh, basically, basically both working on their weakest points. Um, uh, Aprilia, yeah, mostly refinements. 
KTM had a completely different rear end of their bike from the tank backwards. Um, uh, it looks a lot, lot like a Ducati, which is not surprising given that um, uh, Fabio Sterlachini came over from Ducati and is now uh, sort of technical, technical director of that project. So he's bringing a lot of things. Um, and taking a lot uh, of engineers. Yeah, I'd say, yeah, exactly. Yes, taking a lot of engineers. Um, Honda, they were playing with, you know, they were playing with lots and lots of things. I mean, like the biggest thing was this swing arm from Calex. Um, it is just absolutely groundbreaking. Uh, HRC stuck with this in brakes and shower suspension for a very, very long time when the rest of the, uh, the, the, you know, the, the rest of the grid had all switched over from, to, uh, Olin's and Brembo. They were, I think they were the last Nissan holdouts and they were the last, certainly the last shower holdouts. And I remember, uh, uh Danny Pedrosa really pressuring HRC to switch from shower to H, to shower to Olin's. I seem to recall it being like around about Mizano, sort of in the middle of the season as well in 2008 or nine. Um, uh, I forget exactly, but yeah, there was, there was a lot of, uh, there was a lot of things going on there. It took them a, a lot to move. They, HRC do everything in house. So for them to actually outsource this, uh, to Calex is, is, is a really big deal. And it seems to have worked. You know, it looks like it's much more promising. I think we're really going to see that the most interesting question to me about this weekend at Aragon is whether that, uh, that swing arm gets put straight into the bike. Um, if it's straight into the bike, then it gets, um, then it's really, 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 really interesting. And of course, the other big thing about the test, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a moment, is um, uh, there was a, a rider who'd gone missing for a while, and um, he came back and put in a few laps. Now, Ducati are very much on the march, aren't they? I mean, four wins in a row for Pekka Bagnaia. We're going to a track where he was victorious last year. He's closed the gap in the championship right down to almost a race. Uh, you know, Ducati were, were they, I mean, they're, they're not shy with their innovation and bringing new stuff, but it seems that the Mazzano test, even they had Michele Piro competing, of course, but he also, he was working. There was nothing really um, earth shattering from the Italians, was it? But that's hardly surprising considering the position they're in at the moment. Yeah, it's it's not really surprising at all. Um, we saw that again last year, I think, where, um, yeah, this time last year, they weren't really bringing big changes to their package. Um, they weren't even really bringing big changes to their package in uh, Perez, I think, at the end of the season. Um, it was more once we got to uh, Sepang that um, they started noticing that, uh, well, this engine is quite different and um, we're maybe not exactly happy with it. So, um, no big surprise there. Obviously, I don't think Chicago need to do anything major to the bike. Um, they're in a real position of strength, as you said. Pecco's in great form. Just the fact that um, they have well, eight riders, basically, they can call upon um, to on their day finish on the podium. I mean, that's a, a really strong position to be in. Um, but interesting that Pecco was saying that, uh, yeah, they're looking for more agility. They're looking to basically be able to close off corners a bit better than uh, Yamaha. That's something that he's noticed. And, um, you know, I think we've always spoken about this as um, almost a blind spot of Gigi Delaney, almost a blinkers on in this department. Um, he feels that if he puts a bike on the grid that accelerates well, breaks well, and has fantastic top speed, then you can basically um, overcome the adversities of your agility. Um, but, um, yeah, it does seem that they're making a few little um, movements towards uh, this kind of area. Um uh, let's see if it uh, if it actually happens and comes to pass. But um, 
yeah, I don't think they're in a position where they have to rework the bike. Dave, as much as Pekka Banaya is under pressure for his capabilities and having to chase Fabio Quattararo in the championship, uh, he was also one of the guests of honor at the, the Formula One, as we saw in social media. And Fabio Quattararo himself, uh, you know, it was also quite close to being under the cosh, isn't he? Do you think, you know, some of the gains that Yamaha seem to have made at Mazzano with their engine uh, and the potential from the M1 might have given him a little bit more reassurance, perhaps? Uh, oh yeah, I mean, like this was. This is basically the reason why they signed up. Um, th- th- this is the reason why Fabio sort of signed another two-year contract with Yamaha because he was given these reassurances uh, in the lead-up to Jerez, and uh, that was uh, enough for, for him to commit. We also saw, um, I forget the chap's name, the Italian ex-Ferrari engineer. I think Marmarini is is the name. Uh, worked with Ferrari, worked with, I think, also Toyota, who's come over to help with the engine. Um, seems to have made a big difference because the engine is uh, significantly uh, better. This is exactly, this is basically rewarding the confidence which Guattararo showed in uh, Yamaha. Uh, and like I said, the bike the, the, the bike looks really good. I mean, you know, like it, 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 it was significantly it was significantly better. It's hard to know until they actually get on the track. And again, it's not going to be it's not going to be the fastest bike when we get to Qatar. But what it will do is it will be able to at least stay with the Ducatis. It'll be able to stay in the slipstream, don't have to worry about it. And then Quattararo can use the rest of the, uh, uh, you know, the rest of the track to actually get past and, and leave them behind. Well, in a couple of days, we get underway for round 15 and Motorland Aragon, uh, 5.1 kilometers, uh, 17 corners. I think it's maybe the third longest track on the calendar. Um, in the last four editions of the Grand Prix, we've had four different winners and four different brands. Uh, Franco Morbidelli, Alex Rins, um, and Peko Bagnaia, of course, and Honda's last winner, Mar- Marquez. And as we're recording, there's no official confirmation from Honda that Mark is going to compete already after you know a successful outing where he did a substantial number of laps at Mazzano, but we're, we're expecting, aren't we guys? I mean, Mark is, is going to be racing again. I, and I want to know, Dave, if you are feeling as confident in his abilities as you were on his last return, when you, you know, were quite um, assertive about the fact that he was going to be on the podium, uh, which he wasn't. I mean, I'm even more uh, confident in his abilities, but I don't know whether it'll be, the, the, I mean, look, he should be on the podium uh, at um, Aragon, but I'm not sure that he will be because I don't, I'm not sure about his fitness. Basically, the only thing that is missing right now is his fitness. The arm is uh, healed. He was saying after the at uh, the Misano test that basically the bone had healed. The bone was strong. It was compl- It was straight and it was strong. Uh, so it can uh, do that. The problem is the muscles. You know, the muscles are all after having sort of that bone twisted uh, for 30, 34 degrees, which is a lot. The the muscles had all grown the wrong way around, and now they need to reform, uh, take the, their more natural shape. Um, and there's the only one way for them to do that, and that's to ride a MotoGP bike. So. We'll see. I don't think he's going to, like I said, I I do expect him to ride because he was riding, I think, yesterday, riding a CBR 600 around the uh, kart track at uh, Aragon. Uh, But he's not going to, uh, I I don't think he's going to be strong enough to actually last the whole lap. He said, you know, like he tried to do seven laps at at Misano. And by the seven laps, like his his arm was just done. It was completely, you know, he just had no strength in it. Uh, But no strength, again, is a lack of muscle, not anything else. Neil, if, even if Mark was 
fully fit or anywhere near a condition to to fight for 27 laps or wherever it is at Aragon. I think it's less, like I mentioned, because of the length of the track. Uh, you know, with the current state of play or, or the palette at HRC, is it unrealistic to expect him to suddenly come back and take, you know, the RCV to podium contention as well? It, it seems unlikely. Uh, it certainly seems unlikely, yeah. Although I wouldn't, if Mark does come back at Aragon, I wouldn't bet against him being on the podium before the end of the year for sure. Um, you always have to, yes, he did struggle in the first uh, eight races of, um, well, he wasn't at all eight races, was he? But uh, the races he competed before the operation after Mugello, uh, he did struggle quite a lot. But you do wonder just how much that struggle was down to his arm and um, basically the fact that there was 30 plus degrees of rotation in it. It hadn't grown back well at all. Um, you know, now that the arm is, is fixed, essentially, uh, and he's able to ride in a, a normal way for him, then, um, you know, we, we are going to perhaps see just, just how bad this bike is or whether it is actually that bad at all. Um, I mean, there's one or two people we know uh, involved in HRC that are convinced that it's, it's not as bad as it looks there. It's just that um, they have... Currently, um, four riders lacking confidence and uh, in some cases lacking a bit of motivation because the situation has been dire from the start of the year. If you had a fully fit mark on there, it might not be quite like that. Um, so, yeah, I think it's unrealistic to say you'll be on the podium at Aragon, but um, maybe by the time we get to Valencia at the end of the year, uh, we could see Mark fighting somewhere towards the front, um, maybe for, for podium places. But, um, but yeah, he's he said something interesting at Mizano. He said, basically, once you get to 80% fitness, the last 20% comes from you being on a MotoGP bike. It doesn't come from training because the type of muscles you use and you need to ride a MotoGP machine are, are unique and can't really be formed just by by gym work um, or, or working away from the track. So um, he's doing this, I think, just with eyes on next year, getting up to speed as, as soon as possible, not because he thinks he's going to be competitive and uh, scoring great results from the off. Mark is, as we said before, still Honda's top rider in the championship. Um, he's 14 points, I believe, ahead of uh, Takanakagami, um, who's just, you know, confirmed today, actually, we're recording that he's going to be in MotoGP for, I think, which will be his sixth season next year. Uh, what do we think about that one, guys? Um, also, let's not forget, um, Taka took his only ever MotoGP pole position in um, Aragon two years ago uh, in the pandemic championship 2020. So perhaps, you know, Takanakagami, if there's somebody who knows not only the culture around how HRC developed motorcycles, but also the bike itself, then, you know, that that's a strong point for Honda this weekend. And it's also perhaps the reason why he's been retained for another year, just to try and bed this new version of the bike in and help with development even further. I think it's, uh, yeah, I think it makes sense. Firstly, Iger didn't want to step up to MotoGP. So I think that was, that was crucial. I think HRC, Honda consulted I. He is essentially their golden boy and they want to accommodate him in MotoGP. Um, but he was pretty adamant that uh, he felt it would be beneficial for him to have another year in Moto2. He doesn't feel like he's learned all there is to learn in that class. And I think he wants to to win it and win it convincingly. He is obviously still capable of winning it this year. Um, and I think also keeping Taka um, does make sense from a sort of continuity point of view, because obviously Mier is coming in, Alex Wins is coming in. Yes, Marquez is there, but he's had such a complicated couple of years because of injury. There's no 100% guarantee that... I guess uh, 
he'll be there fighting fully fit at the start of next year. Um, and if, you know, if Mark had another injury, let's say, obviously we, we touch wood and hope that doesn't happen, but um, then you would have a completely three completely new riders, um, two guys coming from a very different concept of bike and uh, and a, a Moto2 rookie. So I think, you know, having a continuity in the form of Nakagami made sense. And let's be honest, Nakagami hasn't been terrible. I know that's quite a damning stat that Mark is still the top Honda rider in the championship. But I think there have been races this year where he's been doing well. And before Mark stepped aside, you know, Nakagami was basically finishing ahead of him, um, which I think, you know, on a, in the difficult, in difficult circumstances for Honda, you know, that says, you know, that says something. So um, I think it does make sense, even if he hasn't set the world alight. Yeah, I mean, there are there's there's only really like three, maybe four uh, riders in MotoGP who will set the the the, the world alight. There's a whole tier of riders who are very very good, uh, but not exceptional, and they tend to be sort of a little bit interchangeable. So yeah, you could swap Takanakagami with with someone else, but there's no need to because he's very, he's a very good rider. He can do everything that he needs to. Uh, he can score results. Um, uh, he can provide feedback. He can do all the all the development. And as Neil says, he provides continuity. Uh, and also, given that that's uh, Idemitsu sponsorship, it's Japanese sponsorship, and they want an Asian rider. Um, he, he has the right passport as well. And HRC also wants a Japanese rider uh, in uh, MotoGP as well. So yeah, it, it, there's there's no reason to get rid of Takanakagami really because there aren't any obvious or until Ayagura is ready, there aren't any obvious and immediate upgrades available. In other news, Valentino Rossi's team, Mooney VR46, have basically confirmed their riders as well for next year. Marco Bezzecchi on the second of a two-year contract. Uh, he's also just ahead of Mark in the championship and firmly in pole position, I guess you could say, for Rookie of the Year. Uh, you know, it's debatable how much that a title actually means to certain people. Um, but Bezeki is six positions ahead of uh, Didier Di Antonio, which I can never say. I'll just stick to Digia. Uh, so, you know, looking good for, for Bezeki, of course, um, a decent debut season. And then Luca Marini signing another year uh, to be his teammate. And uh, we're happy about that, aren't we, guys? Because um, Luca Marini, I mean, he's finished fourth in his last two Grand Prix, so clearly has the chops, uh, the capabilities to be able to, you know, cut the mustard in MotoGP. But then also he's um, becoming more and more of a, an articulate and interesting guy to talk to about whatever it may be concerning the championship. He, absolutely, and also it's a no-brainer. They were both, they're both very good riders doing extremely well, and there's no reason to swap them. The two members of the VR46 Academy, um, they're two Italians, they're still very young. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it makes absolute sense. Yeah, the, the most no-brainer no of decisions, I think, uh, with regards to uh, renewing riders for next year. Uh, the last section of the show, guys, and I know it's your personal favourites. Uh, who do we think is going to win this weekend in Motorland Aragon? And you're not allowed to say more than two names looking at you, <laughs> Mr. Emmett and Mr. Morrison. Mark Marquez. No, that's um, uh, that, that I think is is an exaggeration. No, I think I mean like you have to say that Pekka goes into it being the favourite because he was so so good last year and the bike really suits that track. Um, personally, I'm much more interested in where Fabio Quartararo finishes because I think he's going to do much better than he and many other people expect. Um, uh, I think 
he like he's not going to win it but I, I think he could get quite close to a podium and if he can do that uh, then that's going to be a really really big important result for him in the championship but you're talking about a rider that finished where in his championship year last year uh, eighth at Aragon uh, the previous year he finished 18th and eighth um, I mean it's not exactly a great track for him is it um, I, yes he's riding better than ever currently Div, but um, it just seems to be the one track on the calendar that he can't gel with and we do know that the Yamaha um, has been left behind a little bit this year uh, yeah and also I mean like previously his biggest problem has been his, the, the, the front tyre pressure uh, and they seem to have managed that much much better and also they know that he's going to be starting sort of somewhere mid-pack and uh, so they can adjust their plans accordingly we'll see but I also have like a feeling like Paco Benio is on a real um, he's on a real roll four in a row now um, and at some point I mean, unless you're Mark Marquez, at some point um, those sort of uh, sequences come to an end. And I've just got sort of a little sneaking suspicion that a moment of inattention, you know, a lack of focus or whatever will be enough for Fabio to make a mistake. Peco to make a mistake. Peco, yes. Sorry, yes, for Peco to make a mistake, yes. I um, I can't wait to see... Dave's face when <laughs> Fabio wins on Sunday and Neil reminds him of that 8th and 18th positions because that's the sort of thing you know that tends to happen isn't it I'm absolutely slightly, I'm slightly worried Dave has uh, made me look a bit silly with my predictions recently and if Dave is making me look silly with predictions then uh, I think that <laughs> says a great deal about uh, my strength of, uh, of predicting what's yeah, going to happen you're in real trouble <laughs> yeah I I mean, you said one or two riders out, so I'm just going to say Aprilia. I think this should be a great track for them. I think it should be a great round for them. This is arguably, well, it's Alicia Spargo's favourite track, I think, on the entire calendar. He's had a great couple of uh, performances here in the past. I think he scored six places with Aprilia in 17, 18, and was fourth at Aragon last year. Um, and obviously, those were seasons when Aprilia was not showing the kind of performance that we've seen in 2022. Um, you kind of think of some of their long, some of the long corners at Aragon, long, fast corners where he was so, so strong. Um, uh, Assen, for example, through the Ramsook. Um, obviously, the, the aero package that they're using now, you think, should be kind of um, well equipped to deal with some of those, some of the kind of layout uh, changes that we have in Aragon. Um, so yeah, I think we could see maybe both Alation and Maverick fighting for podium places. I might say Maverick to even win uh, at Aragon because I do think that Aragon is one of those really good Vinales tracks. If I'm not wrong, I think he won here in Model 2 um, and he's had podiums in Model GP as well. Um, on a Yamaha? On a Yamaha. Raced at Aragon last year, if I'm not wrong. Maybe not. Did he? Oh, no. No, he didn't. Sorry. Um However, uh, I still think this could be a this could be a good thing for Maverick. He's had uh, uh, three podiums from the past four races, so uh, he comes here in form. And yeah, I rather fancy a pretty to, to take the fight to Peko this weekend. Yeah, I, I, I'm. I think it would be fantastic if it was Maverick versus Aleish for uh, uh, for the win in Aragon, and you do sort of like feel that you know Maverick is really really close now and it could be very interesting so i think that's a really good shout me i'm sticking with uh bagnaya i think he's going to do it i hope he does because i want the championship to you know narrow up in terms of the spectacle that it's offering 
Um, it's also, I mentioned Alex Rins was one of the previous winners at Aragon, and it's hard not to feel that the sun is really setting on the Suzuki project now. I mean, we didn't really need to te- talk about them in terms of the Mizano test, even though the team were working there for, you know, potential ideas for the rest of the season. But it's hard to imagine, you know, um, Rins really coming back. Is Drummeyer going to be fit for this race, by the way? He's traveling to the track or he's traveling to the race, but he's not sure. And it, and it looks like it might be a dummy Egerto to fill in. And Egerto was actually really, I mean, not fast, but he was extremely respectable um, uh, for his first time on a MotoGP bike since I think he rode the Suter CRT bike like back in about 2012, 11. So, yeah, I mean, he seemed to do okay. And I would just like to correct myself. Vinales actually has never finished on the podium in MotoGP at Aragon. Um, and he did race there last year. That was his first race for Aprilia. He finished 18th, but um, obviously he's come on leaps and bounds since then. So, um, yes, uh, Vinales for a first podium in MotoGP at Aragon. That's what I'll say. So you're saying that a rider who finished 18th in Aragon has no chance of winning, but then hang on, <laughs> the one who finished 18th last year is going to go for it. I'm very confused now. It, make, it <laughs> makes complete sense. It's completely, it's completely logical. You're just not thinking about it the right way, Ad. There are these things called circumstances, Ad, which you have to apply to these <laughs> kind of situations. I don't know if you're aware of that. <laughs> Well, listen, we'll be trying to remember to update our fantasy teams. We do have a league. Um, as we've mentioned before, we're going to be giving away some prizes at the end of the year. So come and join us on the MotoGP Fantasy League. Uh, we'll also be giving you content on our Patreon channels, uh, all different tiers, uh, starting on Thursday from Motorland Aragon. So head over to Patreon for and look at Paddock Pass Podcast, and you'll find all our special content there from the Grand Prix circuits themselves. Um, if you have any other questions or doubts or want any more information, then contact us through Paddock Pass Pod on Twitter. Uh, it's been great talking to you. It's nice to check in and you know, talk pre-Aragon and the news that's been coming forwards. Uh, guys, we'll catch each other at the circuit on Thursday. And then, um, you know, well, we won't be getting ready for Japan. Dave and I, I'm heading straight to the US for the motocross of the nations. Uh, Dave's not bothering any of that um, transcontinental flying malarkey. Uh, Neil, I think you're even going to be covering it from, from home base. But then, of course, uh, MotoGP is, like we mentioned, getting very jet set and um, embarking on the next four races in four different territories on the other side of the world but anyway thanks ever so much to fly racing and to rental street thanks for listening to this latest edition of the paddock pass podcast we'll be back next week this episode of the paddock pass podcast was produced by jensen beeler david emmett steve english neil morrison and adam wheeler it was edited by brian burnett music is provided by the liberty all inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com